So bismillah alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa man wala. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I hope and pray that everyone inshallah is doing wonderful and well. It's great to see so many of you here, alhamdulillah. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to increase you and raise you, alhamdulillah. And I pray that everyone inshallah is safe. Um, and sound and, 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 and doing um, as best they can under these uh, very difficult kind of situations. Um, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to raise you, uh, to increase you, to bless you, um, to make you inshallah safe and you and yours and those who you love. Uh, today inshallah we're going to be talking, actually this is going to be divided up into two parts uh, inshallah ta'ala and the first part is going to deal with principles. Uh, one of the, the challenges of education, especially in the English language, is that we tend to get thrown into kind of an ocean without having the necessary principles to understand those oceans, especially the oceans of religious learning and religious knowledge. So what I'm going to do today, inshallah, is share with you some of the foundational principles needed for two things. The first is to understand eschatology correctly uh, from the Islamic perspective. How do we understand the texts? that talk about the end of times. How do we engage those texts? How do we make sure that we're understanding them correctly? There are rules and principles for that. Uh, number two is how do we then engage and act um, and, uh, you know, uh, the application of the text related to the end of times. So my, my job as someone who's trained in theology, and that's my background uh, for almost 20 years of study, is, is to teach these principles. Um, so my, my style may be a little different than what people are used to. Uh, my, my concern is the correct understanding and application, not necessarily the kind of emotional um, interactions or the cathartic reactions to things. And I think you'll really enjoy this because learning principles is very, very important. And what we're going to talk uh, today uh, specifically are about nine principles needed to understand text related to the end of times. And then another class, and it won't be next week because next week we're going to be talking about the preservation of the Quran. But perhaps the week after then we'll talk about the application of these principles to certain texts. Um, in specific, talking about the Dajjal, talking about Al-Mahdi, and talking about uh, Sayyidina Isa alayhim as-salam wa ad-Dajjal. So today we're going to cover eight principles, and these eight principles are founded in our books of what's called Usul al-Fiqh, uh, which is really the foundation of making sure we understand religious texts correctly. And these are going to deal with two areas. Number one is interpretation and authenticity, so that's one kind of area. And the second area is then the application. How do we think about the application of a hadith, in particular, that are related to eschatology, right? Things that are going to happen uh, towards the end of time and the signs of the end of time. So uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about today, inshallah. So it's very important that we appreciate how important the hereafter is. The Qur'an, it's almost impossible to find a chapter of the Qur'an without the hereafter being mentioned. Subhanallah, Surah Al-Fatiha, Maliki Yawmiddin, the master of the Day of Judgment, Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the very next page, that they believe in the hereafter, they have certainty in the hereafter. The next page, 
they have a grievous punishment waiting them, awaiting them. In the fourth page, that hell is made of stones and human beings. In the next page, subhanAllah, it talks about Jannah. So it's almost impossible to find a page of Quran where the hereafter is not explicitly mentioned, subhanAllah. It was also the way of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ and the early Muslims to talk about the hereafter, especially amongst the young. Um, Sayyidina Abu Hurairah anhu, when he would meet young people, he would say to them, perhaps one day you will meet Isa salam. So when you meet him, give him my salams. Give my salams to him. Tawus, one of the early great Muslims, he was a scholar of Islamic law. He asked his son, when he prayed, he asked his son, did you make the dua at the end of your prayer? Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min adhab al-qabr. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from the punishment of the grave. Wa a'udhu bika min fitnat al-dajjal. And I seek refuge in you from the trial of the Antichrist. And his son, he said, no. So Tawus, he said, go back and pray again, because it was his opinion, and this, this goes against the major schools of Islamic law, his opinion was that saying that supplication was fard in salah. Because the companions of the Prophet Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said that the Prophet taught us this supplication like he taught us the Qur'an. And that's why Imam ibn Hazm in Al-Muhalla, volume 2, page 79, I believe, if my memory serves me correct, he also was of the opinion that making the dua at the end of prayer, seeking Allah's help and assistance from the trials of the end of times and the hereafter was fard. Although this goes against uh, the major schools of Islamic law. The point is like, look how they understood it, subhanAllah. We know that the Prophet wasallam, people would ask him about the end of times. People would ask him, subhanAllah, about the signs of the hour and he would respond to them. Sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam, Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhuma said that the Prophet radiallahu anhu said that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would talk about the Dajjal as though we thought the Dajjal had already came. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, an Imam Safarini al Hambari, he says that it behooves the Muslims to share the knowledge of the end of times and the hereafter with the young Muslims in particular to give them a sense of direction and purpose and centering and focus. Uh, so what we would like to do today, as I mentioned earlier, is to go through really eight important principles. I think you're going to enjoy this. Um, when you study any science, when you study fiqh, the principles that govern Islamic law are also fiqh. When you study uh, aqidah or, or, or the Quran in particular in verses about belief, the, the science, the rules of aqidah come into play. And when you study, for example, the purification of the heart and refinement of character, you have the principles of tasawwuf. These foundational principles, as I mentioned earlier, are not really taught uh, for a number of reasons uh, here in the United States. So let's, let's quickly talk about eight principles. Uh, feel free if you have any questions, please, you can raise your hand. Uh, but I'm trying to, to make, I don't like to talk longer than an hour, so I'm going to try to keep it brief, uh, and then I hope, inshallah, uh, you'll be able to, to jump in. 
um, inshallah, and share some questions, inshallah. Uh, we're not looking for comments or khutbahs, or, or we're looking for learning, right? And we're looking for people to engage, inshallah. So the first uh, principle that we want to talk about um, related um, to understanding texts that deal with what's called al-fitan, wa asharat al-sa'ah, wa al-akhirah. In particular, now we're talking about the texts that deal with the signs of the end of time, and the trials that the Prophet mentioned Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that will um, come to the end of time. And for those of you asking, I'm also professionally recording this uh, as best I can and I'll post it on my YouTube page uh, as well uh, for you inshallah. And I'll put these principles on that post inshallah. So the first principle is related to authenticity. And this is a principle which is extremely important. It says, Al-Iqtisaru fi tanzili ala nususil wahyaini wa ta'akkudu min sihatiha lafzan wa ma'nan. And what that means is that when it comes to any information related to the end of times, we restrict ourselves to the two sources of revelation. And that's because anything that has to deal with the signs of the hour or the hereafter or what happens after death can only come from the mainstream Sunni position from wahi, from revelation. Not a shaykh, not an imam, not a righteous person, not someone's personal experience, not someone seeing a dream. It's what's called al-matlu, those things that were recited to us from the Qur'an and from the authentic hadith of Sayyid al-Aqwan sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. So the first part of this principle addresses authenticity. And of course, this is not talking about the Qur'an because the Qur'an, alhamdulillah, as we're going to talk about also in two or three sessions, is preserved, alhamdulillah, and protected. In particular, what this axiom is talking about is hadith. But in general, it also deals with a sense of discipline. Al-iqtisar, I restrict myself fi tanzil ala nusus al-wahyin. That when it comes to the application of anything related to the end of times, I restrict myself to what's found in the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet. That's the first part of the axiom. So someone has a dream. They said like, you know, I saw, you know, Emily Goldstein. She's here. She's a good friend of mine. I saw her in a dream and she gave me all her Bitcoin and she'll go to Jannah. Right? That is not something that we take from somebody. Uh, somebody said that there's a special religious teacher who he knows what will happen or she knows what will happen to you in the grave if you do. No, we don't, we don't do that. And one of the things that you're going to see, and I hope you can appreciate, is the constant commitment to responsibility of the principles of scholarship when it comes to interpretation and application. The incredible care in these principles that, that, that we're sharing with you. So the first is, this information can only come from revelation. It rhymes. The, this information can only come from revelation. The second part of the principle is what ta'akkud min sihatiha is to make sure that it's authentic. So that means the hadith is either sahih or hasan or hasan li ghayrihi and so on and so forth. So that's the second part. The third, lafzan wa ma'nan. And lafzan deals with the actual authenticity of the hadith. The last part of this principle 
is that I'm understanding the hadith correctly. That I have understood the hadith properly. So if you think about it, there are three parts to this first principle when it comes to dealing with eschatology in Islam. Number one is I restrict myself to revelation. Number two, I make sure that it is authentic. Number three, I make sure that the understanding, the application is correct. I'll give you an example of this. Um, a few years ago, when, when the people of Syria were, were fighting for their freedom and there was an onslaught happening from every possible angle we can imagine, and we make dua for the people of Syria, we ask Allah to bless them and give them khair. And people began to say that Al-Ghuta, which is an area close to Damascus, there is going to be a battle there, and this battle is going to happen, and all of you know, Muslims should go there, it's going to be the apocalyptic battle. This hadith is da'if. In fact, this hadith is fabricated according to some scholars, especially the narration through Abu Hurairah. And we look at the chain of this hadith, we find number one is the chain of Abu Darda, which has irsal. It's a form of weakness in the hadith. The second is the hadith of, of Mu'adh ibn Jabal narrated to him. It didn't mean he narrated, but someone said that Abu Darda narrated it. Someone said that Mu'ad narrated it. We see the narration of Mu'ad ibn Jabal has Ibn Abi Maryam, who's weak. The third narration is the narration of Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhum jami'an, who, which is so wrought with problems that it would be impossible for us to spend time analyzing that hadith now. But the point is, the hadith is not authentic. But people ran with it. And people made memes out of it. People spread it like wildfire without what we say, making sure that the hadith is authentic. Somebody may be asked, why did they share this hadith? Well, perhaps they didn't know what they were doing, which is just because someone posts something on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook doesn't mean they know. Number two is that there is an authentic hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that is talking about the signs of our and someone inadvertently, as they were making these memes, added this part of the hadith to that hadith. So they were confused. So they confused an authentic hadith, they mixed it with a weak hadith, and people didn't know. But this is an example, a classic example, of mixing authentic hadith with a weak hadith or utilizing weak hadith for an issue that deals with the end of times, which is problematic, without making, you know, affirming the authenticity of the text. And one of the things I hope we can appreciate as we, we talk is we have to be very careful coming out of a post-enlightenment experience with the, the Eurocentric world, is that sometimes Muslims, we treat as there is a hadith that says the Muslims will treat their imams like Bani Israel treated their prophets. There is a hatred for religious scholarship. There is a, an anger, understandably in certain areas, at scholars, but to the point that it becomes extreme, one of the things that we can appreciate here is you can see the depth now needed to engage things. And sometimes people just don't like to be disciplined. Uh, SubhanAllah, we ask Allah bil-afiyah. So, so the first principle is to restrict ourselves to authentic information. That means that I am making sure the source is sound, Secondly, I'm making sure my understanding even of a sound source is correct. And then thirdly, 
I'm making sure I am restricting my information to the sources of revelation. I can give you an example of people utilizing a sound source, but not understanding it correctly. And that is the hadith of the Prophet from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, La taqumu sa'ah, that the hour will not start until there's no hajj. And I remember in the beginning of the corona pandemic, and we ask Allah to make it easy for all of us and protect all of us, Ya Rab, insha'Allah, and to preserve us and our families and to forgive those we may have lost who are, alhamdulillah, shuhada. But many people were using this hadith, especially the first uh, few months of corona when they canceled hajj, to say that the hour is upon us. That the hour is upon us because there'll be no hajj. This was a grave mistake. Because although the hadith is authentic, it's related by Imam al-Bukhari and others who have authenticated this hadith, the application is wrong. Ma'nan, how to, how to apply it and understand it. Because this hadith actually is talking about after the time of Sayyidina Isa, alayhi salatu salam. That after the time of Sayyidina Isa, we know that the Prophet said that people will continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse. We know the hadith in Sahih Muslim that people will not, there will be no one even saying the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala left on the face of the earth. So it is that time, at that moment, that the hajj will be abandoned. Now we understand the meaning of the hadith and the application of the hadith. So what I just did for you is I modeled two things. I gave you the principle. We restrict ourselves to revelation. We make sure that the text is authentic. And then if the text is authentic, we make sure that we've done due diligence by making sure we understand the text correctly before it is applied. We're going to talk about this in greater detail in a second. So that's the first principle. And if somebody wants to write them in the chat box, that's going to, I'm sure, uh, help people. The second major principle is la نتكلف إيجادها بأعمال من عندنا أو لا نتكلف إيجادها بأعمال من عندنا What does that mean? This is very important. And this is where we differ from the evangelical community and other communities that in Islam we do not believe we do not we believe that we are not commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do anything to make the hour happen. It is not from a taklif, like salah, we have to pray, like fasting, we have to pray, like hajj, we have to pray. But we are not obligated by the sharia, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to try to cause the signs of the hour to happen or to stop them. So there's a fi'l and there's a tark. And this is very important because this protects the Muslim community from cults. And the actual axiom says, لا نتكلف إيجادها بأعمال من عندنا لأنها أمور كونية وقدرية واقعة لا محالة. Which means is that we are not commanded to do anything that brings about the end of times because this is beyond our control. It is beyond our knowledge. It is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What we should worry about, we'll talk about later, is make sure that we're living right. 
So I remember some people told me, you know, we shouldn't build skyscrapers because the Prophet said, They're going to compete in building uh, large skyscrapers. The Bedouins, that's going to be a sign of the hour. So we shouldn't, that's not your business. In fact, I heard from Dr. Muhammad Wissam years ago when I was studying with him in Masjid Sayyidina Hussein in Egypt, the Muatta. He said to me actually that there is a beautiful axiom that we'll talk about in a minute that there are no rulings associated with aramat al-sa'a. Meaning that, you know, I, I, suddenly I say it's, it's haram to build buildings because of the hadith of Sayyidina Jibreel. La ya shaykh. So this works in two ways, not doing something or doing something. Why is that important? If you think about dispensational millennialism, which is uh, if you turn on the TV late at night and you see uh, the evangelical community raising money to uh, import uh, Jewish uh, immigrants into Palestine. And they say that they have to do this because they have to rid Palestine of the Palestinians. We ask Allah to protect the Palestinians, alhamdulillah, and to make us true supporters of Palestine and the Palestinian people, regardless of their religion. But they believe they have to kick out the Arabs in order for Jesus to come back. That the Jews have to take over the entire area for the seventh epic in their history. You know, they have the, the epic of Christ is the epic of grace. And before that is the epic of law and governance. They have these seven epics in their theology. And one of them is the millennial, which means that in order for Christ to come back, the occupied lands of Palestine have to be purged of Palestinians and non-Jews. And the Jews will take over and then they will cause Jesus to come. And this has a very, this has a very serious impact uh, on people and on society. As Muslims, we don't believe in that. We don't believe that there's anything that we can do that will influence Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is qa'im binafs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't need anything from anybody, nor can he be influenced by anyone. Huwal hayyun subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-qawi subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-aziz subhanahu wa ta'ala, fa'alun lima yurid. And this idea that I can do something to impact outcomes is a problem in tawheed. Because Allah says, Wallahu ala kulli shay'in qadir. So the second axiom is that there's nothing we can do, nor are we obligated from our religion to do anything or not do anything that impacts the signs of the hour, the conditions of the hour, or the end of time. We leave it to Allah. We know this because of the actions of the early Muslims. The Prophet said, لا تقوم الساعة حتى يسر الفرات عن جبل من ذهب. The Prophet said that the hour will not start until uh, the Tigris River reveals a mountain made of gold. Did we read anywhere that the Sahaba frantically searched this river and tried to drain it so they could find a mountain made of gold? Absolutely not. So all of the hadith about the end of times and the signs of hour, the signs of the hour, the Salaf did not act on them. They understood this well. They understood this well. So similarly, we understand from that as well as the text themselves that we are not somehow, again, uh, and this protects us from cults being pushed by quote-unquote 
religious personalities or leadership or whoever to do things that are going to cause the end of times. La. That's impossible. That's impossible. So that's the, the second principle. So now we took two principles. The first, to restrict ourselves to authentic information, to restrict ourselves to revelation. And then the third part of that is to make sure we've understood it well. That's the importance of scholarship and having people we can ask questions to. It's important to be able to ask questions. Uh, and then the second is that we cannot force these things or impact them in any way. And the Sharia, ma tukallifna al-Sharia bihadihi al-umur. The Sharia has not burdened us to do those things. The third principle is also very important, and it, and it touches on not only understanding of the texts, but the application of the text related to the end of time. And it may actually surprise you, but that is al-aslu fi tanzili ahadith al-fitn wa asharati sa'ah ala zamani wal makani wal ashkhas al-rad. What does that mean? That means that the default for applying the religious texts that talk about the signs of the hour or the end of times, the default for contextualizing these to specific people, times or places is that it should be rejected. So somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I was, I was, you know, uh, trying to get something from the store and there was only one left and someone took it, that person is Dajjal. It's not possible. So al-aslu fi tanzil, the foundation of applying these texts to specific times, places, or people is that it should be rejected. We'll talk about later on then how does it happen. But here it's talking about, you know, what you see, people just putting posts online, writing this, I think this, I think this, it's the end of times, I know it's the end of times. Very simple, you should ask the person. There are 75 hadith about the return of Sayyidina Isa, alayhi salatu salam. Have you studied those hadith? There are numerous verses of Quran that specifically talk about the end of times. Are you familiar with those verses? There is an entire section, for example, in the Sunnah of Imam al-Baghwi, on al-Fitan. How many of those hadith have you studied and deeply engaged in? They're going to say none. Then how are you suddenly contextualizing something? And this is what we saw earlier. I gave the example of the hadith of Ghuta. I gave the example of the hadith that the hour not stop until people are not making hajj. A misapplication of those texts, which can create problems in people's lives. So al-aslu, the foundation of applying um, these uh, texts to specific places or people or scenarios is that it should be rejected. Then, how, then, then the question is, then how do, we, how do we engage them so that they are applied when needed? We'll talk about that shortly. But simply put, yeah, simply put, uh, it, should, it should be brought to the people who have a strong understanding. And that's why Asma bint Abi Bakr, the daughter of Sayyidina Abi Bakr radiallahu anhu, we know that the family of Abu Bakr is a beloved family, subhanAllah. Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr was raised by Sayyidina Ali. Radiallahu anhuma. 
Muhammad ibn Abu Bakr, the son of Abu Bakr, was put in power in Egypt during the Khilafah of Imam Ali by Imam Ali. So we should avoid these divisions that people create in the community and understand that many of these things aren't authentic. But if we look historically, we see the family of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was very close to the family of Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. But subhanAllah, Asma bint Abi Bakr, when her son, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, was murdered by Hajjaj and Mukhtar al-Thaqafi, they called her, this is an authentic narration in Sahih Muslim, they called her to see them. And, and, and when she saw them, she said, you know, that you are the people that the Prophet said will be destroyed, the Kadhab and the Mubir. And Imam al Nawi says that, you know, scholars agree that the Kadhab is Mukhtar al Thaqafi, who is known for being an infamous liar, and the Mubir, the one who was Muhlik, was Hajjaj. Why? Because Asma bint Abi Bakr. Uh, anha, she has the knowledge of these things. She's a scholar. MashaAllah, MashaAllah. So the default for contextualizing these things, contextualizing these things is uh, to, to, to reject it. Now, if you think about this axiom, there are three components that are in this one principle. Number one is التحقق من طبيعية الواقعة the first is to make sure that this is indeed the exact situation as described by the hadith. The third is that its, its descriptions are completely in line with those hadith. Those, 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 those descriptions that are found in the text. So, 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 this, this third component, that al-asl fi tanzil ahadith al-fitna ala zaman wal ashkhas al-rad, is very important. People start to try to apply it to different situations and times. The fourth principle, and this is one that sometimes people don't like, especially in this era, is that the asl, the foundation for interpreting a hadith about the end of times, is that they are literal, not figurative. Yani al-haqiqa tuqaddam al majaz I'll give an example of this. You know, when, 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 when Islam was spreading, in particular in the last few years in the United States, I was, I was traveling somewhere, and somebody came to me and said that the converts in America are the rising of the sun from the West. The Prophet said in a sound hadith, لا تقوم الساعة, The hour will not start until the sun rises from the west. So immediately people begin to interpret this hadith figuratively. But that's not acceptable. The hadith which deal with the end of times, the aslu fi tanziliha al-haqiqa is that they should be taken literally unless there are strong evidences within the Prophet's statements that show they are figurative in meaning. 
The fourth principle, inshallah, I don't want to burden you all too much, is that we should understand when it comes to contextualizing hadith and looking at the literal and the figurative, there are three ingredients we have to be aware of. And I mentioned them earlier. Number one, التحقق من طبعية الواقعة is to make sure that it is the exact place. واستكمال للأوصاف الواردة في النص The third is that it aligns in its descriptions of the place and the situation. And in fact, we say there are three ingredients to this. Number one, the nas, the text. Number two, the waqi'ah, the, uh, the, the event itself. And the third, the actions. We find this actually mentioned in Sahih Muslim that the Prophet ﷺ, he said that hour will not start until you fight the Turks. And then he, he was talking to the Sahaba, not to you and me. This is to the Sahaba and the early followers of the Sahaba. And we find Sayyidina Imam al-Nawi, he says, Wallahi, this happened. Because as Allah, and now we know, alhamdulillah, the Turks are Muslim, alhamdulillah. But as the Prophet described them, that is how we found them. That the description of the Prophet ﷺ to those Turks that fought the Muslims early on in Islam is 100% in line with their reality. So those are three very important ingredients when someone wants to contextualize or apply a hadith to a specific situation or a group of people. Remember these three important things. The text, the actual event, the descriptions of the event, and the descriptions of the people in the event, and then the action that takes place. The fifth principle, again, is very important and it creates a sense of responsibility. أَنْ يَكُونَ تَنْزِيلُ بَعِيدًا عَنِ That any interpretation of the signs of the hour do not create an unhealthy burden on people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, مَا جَعَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي دِينِ مِنْ We made this religion without difficulties, without burden. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, of course, we all know this in Surah Al-Baqarah, لَا يُكَلِفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا وُسْعَهَا Allah will never burden people with more than they can handle. And then the statement of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, yusra, that the religion is ease, and nobody will make this religion hard upon themselves except illa ghalaba, they will be defeated. So this is very important. I remember in 1999, there were a group of American Muslims who went with their teacher uh, to Lebanon for New Year's. And they weren't going there for what maybe, you know, regular New Year's stuff. They went there and they went to a mountain. They had saved their money, you know, they had gathered their property. Many of them had, I think, even, you know, sold their homes and burned the boats, as we say. And they went to a mountain in Lebanon and they were told that the Mahdi will come. We're going to talk about the Mahdi in the future, inshallah. That the Mahdi is going to come. So they did it. And they, they lost their wealth, their property. They incurred unnecessary hardship. Had a taklif. That type of burdening people, that's why this axiom is here. That it does not create an unhealthy burden on people. The interpretation of the authentic hadith related to the signs of the hour and the end of times. And yakuna tanziru ba'idan anitakalluf. The sixth 
And this is one that I also find sometimes people uh, not aware of, is that a person is aware of the correct order of the signs. And you ra'ya tartib al-zamaniya li al-asharat. That specifically talking about the conditions and signs of the end of times, people are aware of the proper chronological order. So now when people talk about the Mahdi, and we believe the Mahdi will come as Sunnis, alhamdulillah, but we also believe that the Khulafa al-Rashida will come back before the Mahdi and before the return of Sayyidina Isa, alayhi salatu wassalam. So for somebody to say, you know what, I think the Mahdi is here as a Sunni, is incorrect because according to the, 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 the chronological order of the authentic texts, other things haven't happened yet. And again, it's very easy. You can ask someone when they're making these kind of statements, they, they shouldn't be upset because our goal is knowledge. Our, our, our goal isn't our own ego. Our goal is to be correct. It's not, it's not Islam or Herslam. It's Islam. It has principles and rules and, and, and it has a, a very complex, beautiful system that perfects the ummah from harm, protects the ummah, alhamdulillah. So if someone is saying like, you know, tomorrow's going to be the day of judgment. Well, there's a lot of things that haven't happened yet that we find in authentic hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi So for example, in the sunnah of Imam Ibn Majah that the righteous uh, Khalifa will return. The chronological order of that is before Sayyidina Mahdi and before the return of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salatu wassalam. And the example I gave earlier, people saying that you know that the hour won't happen until there's no hajj, they have completely skipped the chronological order of the other ahadith and suddenly placed it before those hadith. There's why you find the problem. And even if we're going to say the hadith of Ghutta is authentic, as some scholars have said, that is talking about the, the malahim, the apocryphal battle, which hasn't happened yet. So how could that have happened without that happening? So the, this principle is very important that someone is aware of the chronological order of these events. The seventh, and we're almost done inshallah, is that the signs of the hour, this is really, really important, that the signs of the hour are not an excuse not to be a good person. That the signs of the hour cannot be used as an excuse not to worship. That the signs of the hour, we are not allowed to use them to forego our responsibilities to our family and to others and to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is really important because the taklif is till we die. The taklif is till we die. So we say, فَأَنَّهُ لَا يُؤَثِّرُ تَقَرُّبَ أَشْرَاتِ السَّاعَةِ That the, 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 the and, and actually there's two points that I need to make. The first is that it should not cause us to become depressed and become cynical and hyper-negative. So, so the, the, the end of times should not be used as an excuse to like give up on working hard, making effort, and having a general good assumption of people. The second is that the end of times and the signs of the end of times should not be used as an excuse 
to ignore the obligations of Islam, like Salah, for example, like being honest, like, you know, we see some people like they say the end of times is going to be looting and criminality and no, alhamdulillah. Ittaqilaha haythu ma kunt. The hadith of the Prophet sallallahu said, be dutiful to Allah wherever you are. And we know the hadith of the Prophet, which is authentic, if you see the day of judgment start, if you see those things happening and you have a seed in your hand, plant the seed. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The eighth is that we leave what we don't know or find difficult to experts. Ma ashkala alayna. Those things that are difficult to us, kilhu ila alimi. Those things that become confusing or difficult, we leave them to those who know. And as you saw today, we went through quite a number of, of, of principles and interpretive principles and ideas. And that's ideally what our teachers and what we should be training scholars in America, religious scholars, public educators, content providers. These are things that people should know because they protect people from, from going astray. And by the way, I'm, not, I'm only giving you probably one-fourth of all the principles related to this. This would take forever if we were to do it. And it would burden you with things which you know, perhaps are not that important to you. Finally, and this sort of touches on the seventh, is that we do not weaken our resolve or making efforts or trying hard or working for good or supporting the ummah because the signs of the hour have not occurred or we claim that we are waiting on the faraj. We're waiting on you know, the Mahdi to return. We're waiting on Sayyidina Isa to come back. We, we, we use these as an excuse not to work hard to heal a fractured world. So we do not weaken our resolve in making efforts using the signs of the hour as an excuse or waiting for them as an excuse. So Alhamdulillah, that touches on the fact that the Ummah will constantly be dedicated to good. And that the Ummah will find itself constantly invested in doing what's right. I'm going to review these nine principles and I'm going to stop because we'll be coming up almost on an hour. Uh, and if you have any questions,